And the nation grew and grew and grew, and it became a mighty nation until finally they became too much for the Egyptians, and the Egyptians enslaved them. And they spent years and years in slavery. And then God raised up a man named Moses, who was a prophet of God and who led them out of the nation of Egypt. But he made a promise to them in Deuteronomy 18, 18. He said to Moses, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded them. Another prophecy about the Messiah that was to come, given thousands of years before it even came to pass. They were freed from slavery. They came into the promised land. They began to prosper. There were other prophets that came and went and prophesied about this Savior that was to come. King David came to power. And God promised once again through him in 2 Samuel 7.12. He said, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom and your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. We know from the New Testament that the, that, the, uh, that the people of the New Testament prophesied that this was Jesus that he was talking about. It was the Lord that he was prophesying about. Where his kingdom would endure forever was the promise of the Messiah. And, and then another uh, 400 years went by and still they waited. Then the prophet Isaiah came up and he prophesied this in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. He says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Another prophecy of the coming of that Messiah that would come. And each one, you'll notice, gives a little bit more detail as to what's going to happen with him, what he's about, what he's going to do, what he's going to accomplish in his life. This one says he's going to be born of a virgin, that he's going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. Gave some more insight into this calling that this man of God was going to have. But another 500 years would pass until the prophecy were fulfilled. Now we're in the time of Rome. Rome has conquered Israel. It has them under his boot heel. The memory of the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of the other men, and men of God were, were still in the memory of Israel. But it had been more than 400 years since they had heard anything from God at all. From the time of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, until the story that we're going to look at this morning, 400 years had passed. They're called the 400 silent years, when no prophet spoke, when no one said anything about the coming Messiah. And yet the promise remained true. God still spoke the truth. And God's people were still waiting. They had waited about 2,000 years since the first prophecy of the, of the Messiah that was to come. 2,000 years of waiting. America is only about 200 years old. And that seems like a long time for us. But 2,000 years they waited for the promise of God to be made true. And when the beginning of that promise was fulfilled, it started with a humble man and wife, a priest of God named Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now that's really the beginning of the Christmas story. We often think the Christmas story starts with a star in the east and the donkey ride to Bethlehem and the room in the inn and all of that kind of stuff. But really it began with what was called the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, in his birth. But this morning we're going to look at Zachariah's story. Zachariah was John the Baptist's father. He was a priest of God that was, that was serving God with all of his heart and with all of his might. And his wife Elizabeth was also with him. 
And this is the story of Zechariah. Let's read it together in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. It says this. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. This is telling us something important. This is telling us that he was from the priestly line, that he was qualified to be a priest, and his wife was from the priestly line. The writer is telling us that he's keeping all the rules. He's keeping all the laws that are there because a priest could only be of the line of Levi, and he could only, be, uh, uh, he could only marry someone from within that line and lineage also. So they qualified to be a priest. It says, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes. They were righteous in God's eyes. And careful to obey all the Lord's commands and regulations. Now they had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very old. What does this remind you of? What story does this remind you of? Abraham, doesn't it? Abraham was old and had no child. God had promised them a child, but he hadn't come through on the promise yet. And Abraham was 90-something years old. Elizabeth was 90-something years old when they bore their first child. God came through on his promise. So immediately in the listener's ears, this is coming back to them that Abraham is, is, is echoed in this story. It says, One day Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. And while he was burning the incense, a great crowd was outside praying. Here's what's happening. There were so many priests of their day that they couldn't all serve in the temple. The temple was, had a limited number of priests that had assignments to serve. And so there were probably about 18,000 priests of that during that time. They estimate that there were about that many people. And no 18,000 people could even fit into the temple area. So what they did was they would, they would uh, every year at the holy days, they would choose a, a specific priest to serve in a specific place by lot. They would draw numbers essentially. And so the, 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 the priest, uh, Zechariah, his number came up. He won the lottery. Now this is a big deal. This is a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing. This is probably the only time that he would be chosen to serve in the temple area because there were so many. And once your number, once your name came out of the hat, so to speak, I don't know if they had a hat or not, but once your name was drawn, it was thrown aside and you couldn't serve again to give other people a chance to serve. So this is a big deal in Zechariah's life. This is a once-in-a-lifetime, big winner kind of situation for Zechariah. He's chosen to serve incense in the house of the Lord. And so he goes, and all the people are outside praying while he does his duty. When Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. This is standard operating procedure for when you see an angel, by the way. You get shook up. You get scared. You get frightened. You don't start laughing. You don't start giggling. You, don't, you, you, know, you, you do one thing. Isaiah saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. What did Isaiah do? Boom. He fell on his face. He said, I am undone, for I am a peop among, among a people of unclean lips, and I have unclean lips myself. I'm going to die. 
Zechariah was shaken up. He saw this angel. That was not happening before. They had 400 years of silence. Nothing had happened in the temple before this. And suddenly there's an angel standing there. And Zechariah is shaken up. I kind of love how the Bible understates things sometimes. And Zechariah was shaken up. You bet he was shaken up. He was trembling with fear. And the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. This also is standard operating procedure. They always say that, don't they? Don't be afraid. I'm just an angel. Don't worry about it. It's just me. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. This is amazing to him. Remember how old Zechariah is? He's very old. He's past childbearing years. Especially him, he's past childbearing years. He can't bear children anyway. His wife is past childbearing years. And she is not even thinking about this probably anymore. But God had heard a prayer. Now, this is pure speculation on my part, okay? But I wonder if God was answering a prayer prayed a long time ago and then forgotten. I mean, if my wife was 90-some years old and I was 90-some years old, I don't know that I would be praying anymore for to have a child. I mean, that would just be a bit much. But God heard the prayer. I want you to think about that for a minute. God doesn't forget. God doesn't forget our prayers. We can forget our prayers, but God doesn't forget our prayers. And at the right time, he answers those prayers. And this is a miraculous thing. He's, he's, he's traveling in Abraham territory now. And he said, you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. This is the law of the Nazarite. The Nazarite, who Samson was, was to be especially set aside for God's special work. And they were to do that by doing a couple of things. And one of them was they weren't to have anything to do with alcohol at all. I think that's good advice for us today. You may not agree with that. That's okay. You're free to be wrong. But he was not to have anything to do with alcohol at all from the time he was born. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. That happened when Mary came and gave the good news to Elizabeth. The child leaped in her womb. He was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. And that tells us something about the special nature of this baby that is to be born named John. He's to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's not to touch alcohol. And he's to be great in the eyes of the Lord. He said he will be a man with the Spirit and the power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. There's his mission. That's his mission in life, is to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. This is the promise being fulfilled. I wonder if Zechariah's heart just kind of leaped within him. This is an awful lot to digest in one period of time. I mean, you're just minding your own business, doing your thing, and you're, you're, you're probably happy and thrilled because this is, a twi- this is a highlight of his career. He's getting to minister in the temple. Many priests never got to minister in the temple in their entire lifetime. He gets to minister in the temple at the altar of incense, and, to, and then all of a sudden, all of these things start happening. There's an angel. There's the message. There's the birth of his son that's coming. And, and, and he will prepare the hearts of the children, what does it say, for the coming of the Lord. There wasn't any doubt in Zechariah's mind as to what he was talking about. 
He was talking about the Messiah. Zechariah knew that. And he probably thought, how much more can I take? How much more can I take in this, all of this stuff that's going on here? And it says, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. He's talking about reconciliation here. He's going to reconcile people to God. God and man will be reconciled once again through the ministry of John the Baptist, through the introduction of him to the ultimate reconciler named Jesus Christ. John is going to do that. So Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure that this will happen? I'm an old man and my wife is also well along in years. Good question, right? How is this going to happen? I'm too old for this. My wife is too old for this. How is this going to happen? And something about that just kind of sets off the angel a little bit. He says, then the angel said, I am Gabriel. John, uh, Zechariah understood that name. He understood it from Old Testament teaching. I stand in the very presence of God. It was He who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. And from that moment on, Zechariah could not speak a word. Now, I don't know how Elizabeth felt about this. Maybe she was thrilled by this. I don't know. But Zechariah was struck dumb. He wasn't able to speak at all until the child was born. And it says, Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. It doesn't take long to light the incense, to wave it in front of the, in front of the altar, and to put it down and to come back out. That's not a big job. It's not a long task. But it kept going on and on and on and on. And they began to wonder where he was. When he finally came out... He couldn't speak to them, and then they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. When Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. What, how kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. We're going to come back to this in a few minutes. But there was disgrace in not having children. People thought it was a sign of God's judgment on her. But God was not judging her. He was, giving her, he was saving her for the special moment of His planning. God did not judge her. He was blessing her by this. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. And then in verses 57 through 50, 66, it says this. When it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, she gave birth to a son. Just like the angel said. There was a 50-50 shot through the whole thing. And he came out as a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had been very merciful to her, everyone rejoiced with her. When the baby was eight days old, they all came for the circumcision ceremony. That was the naming ceremony also with the circumcision. They would give him his proper name then. They wanted to name him Zachariah after his father. But Elizabeth said, no, his name is John. He had, she had, they had communicated together. They had made it clear that the angel had said his name was to be John. And Elizabeth insisted that his name was John. What? they exclaimed. There is no one in all your family by that name. We've never done it that way before. Change is hard. 
and they didn't, they didn't understand why they wouldn't follow tradition and name him after, after his father. But, but Zachariah was insistent. Elizabeth was insistent. And so they used gestures to ask the baby's father what he wanted to name him. And he motioned for a writing tablet, and to everyone's surprise, he wrote, His name is John. Instantly, Zechariah could speak again, and he began praising God. Awe fell upon the whole neighborhood, and the news of what had happened spread throughout the Judean hills. Everyone who heard about it reflected on these events and said, What will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly upon him. That's the story of Zechariah. And after that, we don't hear too much about Zechariah. It's all about John the Baptist. And then it's about Jesus, the coming Messiah. But Zechariah had an important role to play in that. There are three things that I want to draw your attention to this morning in the time that we have left here. Just three things that I want us to consider about this story of Zechariah before we move on to the story next week that we're going to look at. And that is this. Who is God looking for? The answer is given to us in the, in the scriptures here. It says in Luke 1.6, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes. They were careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations. Now it's broken up into two parts. It says they were righteous in God's eyes. They were careful to obey all the commandments and all of the laws of God. Now we're going to start with careful to obey all the commandments. It didn't say that they had kept them all because... No one can keep the law completely. They failed just like everybody else failed. So it's not the perfectionism that we're looking at here. That perfect attitude and perfect, they were good people, but they weren't perfect people. So we understand that that's not what it's talking about. It's, I think the clue to this lies in the phrase that was before this. They were righteous in God's eyes. They were righteous in God's eyes. What does that mean? What is that talking about? We need to be careful that we don't get the idea that we can earn God's favor. If I give enough in the offering plate, I can earn God's favor. If I show up at church every Sunday, I can earn God's favor. Now those two things are important. Let's not get ahead of the horse here, okay? Those two things are important, but they don't save you. They don't make you righteous in God's sight. We, we can get that idea that if we're perfect, we can get right in God's sight. But that's not what makes us righteous in God's sight. Was David a perfect man? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, he probably couldn't join our church at certain times in his life. Because he did some pretty terrible things. He had a man murdered. He committed adultery. He, he, did, he did all kinds of bad things. Was... was um, Was Peter perfect? No, he wasn't. Yet God used him. Samson wasn't perfect by a long shot. And yet God used him and, and did him. What did they have in common? They, they were willing to be corrected. They were willing to repent. They were willing to respond when God spoke. Let me just say this. You can take it, just jot this down. Faith is saying yes to God. Faith is saying yes to God. If you want a simple explanation of what faith is that leads to righteousness in God's eyes, it is simply saying yes to God. It says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Listen to this. For the in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. 
In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You are righteous before God when you say yes to God, when you say yes to His promises, when you say yes to His words, when you say yes to, his, to, his, to, to what He wants you to do. In, uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter, it talks about Abraham, who's kind of the focus of this, kind of the, the, the echo in the background of this whole story is Abraham and, and Sarah. It says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. He said yes to God. Even though he did not know where he was going, he said yes to God. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of same, the same problem, promise. He said yes to God. For he was looking forward to the city without, with foundations, whose architect and builder was God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was able to have children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. They, she said yes to God. And so from this one man, and as good as a dead man, came descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Who is God looking to use? He is looking to use people who say yes to Him. You see, you're not disqualified by what you have done if you've asked forgiveness and repented of those sins that you have committed. That's why when we have Teen Challenge here, we can see people that tell stories, hair-raising stories sometimes, about how they blew their life, how they messed up, how they ruined their life in the eyes of the world. And yet God has redeemed them, and many of them are in ministry today, redeemed by the call of God, because they said yes to God in the middle of their failures, in the middle of their problems, in the middle of their difficulties. They said yes to God. It says in Philippians 3, 8 and 9, just one more verse to talk about this righteousness that comes from God. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. I said yes to Christ. I said no to the other things in my life. And be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. My righteousness does not depend upon my ability to keep the rules and the regulations because all that does is teach me how weak I am and how awesome God is in His forgiveness of me. But I don't have a righteousness that comes by keeping the law, but, by that, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God is on the basis of faith. It's on the basis of saying yes to Christ. Saying yes to God. If you're wondering if God can use you today, if you've made a mess of your life, if you have messed up so badly that you think you are disqualified from God's service, the answer is say yes to God. Say yes to God. Say that you will obey Him. Say that you will be His. Ask Him to forgive your sins and you will be made right in Him. And then you will have a righteousness that comes not from the rule keeping, but from Christ Himself. Faith in Him. Who is God looking to use? He's looking to use all those that will say yes to Him. 
The second thing that I want you to notice here is that we shouldn't judge by outward appearances. We shouldn't judge by outward appearances. In, in Luke chapter 1, verse 25, Elizabeth says this. It's a very short piece of scripture, but it's very telling. It says, how kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. It was thought of in those days that children were a blessing from God. The Bible says that children are an inheritance from the Lord. And so they thought children are a blessing, so therefore not having children must be a curse. They made a false assumption. They assumed that if you didn't have children, that you were somehow cursed by God. That is, that is a terrible burden to put on a woman that can't have children. Terrible burden to put on her. And yet they did it quite readily. And even today, there's a stigma that's attached in some quarters to not having children as a, as a sign from God. But, but one of the things that we need to understand is how we look at people determines how we treat people. How we look at people determines how we treat them. There are two ways that you can look at, at people. You can look at them through the eyes of a judge. A judge that just simply says, this is what you are, this is what you've done, here's the penalty for it, that's all that God, that's all that, that's written, and that's all that you're ever going to be. You're a judge, jury, and convictor all in one setting. And we, can be care we need to be careful that we don't become a judge. Why? Because the judge has nothing to do with compassion. Or we can look at people through the eyes of a doctor. A doctor sees the same situation that the judge sees, but it has a totally different outcome because the doctor is looking to do one thing, and that is he is looking to heal the broken part. They both see exactly the same thing. You can see that mother in the store, that mother all by herself with three screaming kids, and they're grabbing stuff off the shelf, and they're running all over the place, and that mother is screaming at them, and she's yelling and calling them names. You can look at that person through the eyes of the judge and say, I wish that woman would control her children. I don't know why she's got to let them run. If she would just take my course in child rearing, that would take care of everything. Or you can look at their, through the eyes of a doctor. I wonder what she needs. I wonder if anybody's prayed for her. I wonder if she just needs a word of encouragement to make her day a little better. I wonder if she, if, 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 if she would be receptive to me saying, I'm praying for you. See, the eyes of the judge and the eyes of the doctor are two different things. We need to be careful that we don't, that we don't be, a, be a judge instead of a doctor. Um, Philippians 2.3 says this, Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. When you look at that mother that's having such a difficult time, remember, you're no better than her. You're no better than her. We're all sinners in God's sight. We're all stained by sin. It's just that your problems probably aren't as manifest publicly as hers are. And so we need to be careful that we don't judge by outward appearances. You remember the story of David, young boy, shepherd, and, uh, and uh, 
Samuel the prophet was looking for the next king of Israel. God told him, go to the, tribe, go to the family of Jesse and, and look for it among the children, that, among the young men that are there. And so he went to all of David's brothers and everyone that came up was strong, strapping, kingly-like person. And God said to each one of them, no, that's not the one. No, that's not the one. No, that's not the one. Until finally Jesse in desper- Samuel in desperation says, don't you have any other sons? And they say, well, we got a kid brother. But he's just a shepherd. Doesn't show a lot of promise. He's just watching the sheep right now. And Samuel said, go and get him because God has chosen him. And then he said this, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things the people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I wonder how many times somebody came up to Elizabeth and said, God has a plan for you. God has something special he's going to do for you. God has a blessing for you. Instead of saying, oh my, what a burden she has to bear. Cursed by God because she doesn't have children. Can you see the difference between the eyes of the judge and the eyes of the doctor? Let's work at being the eyes of the doctor in this world, shall we? And then finally, the story exposes the father heart of God. It says in his description of John the Baptist, he says this about him. He says, And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and the power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of God. It is a ministry of reconciliation. God was going to display his own character through the life of John the Baptist, of calling people to repentance, of calling people to wholeness with him, of calling people to oneness with God. John the Baptist had the ministry of reconciliation. You see that when he's out in the desert baptizing people. He's calling them back to God. They're coming in droves, so much so that the Pharisees came and were upset that he was drawing bigger crowds than they were. Because he was a ministry of reconciliation. He had one message, and that message, well, actually two messages. He had two messages. One message is, the Messiah is coming, better get your act together. And the second one was, you can get your act together through faith in God. Put your trust in Him, repent, be baptized, and you can be made right with God. He was practicing the ministry of reconciliation. Folks, that's what you and I are called to do also. We are called to draw people into the kingdom of God. We're called to make them one with their Creator again. We're called to show them the love of their Creator in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, 15-18, it says this, So I have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. Paul is saying what we've been saying. We don't view others from the human point of view. The humans can only judge what's going on in the physical realm. But the Spirit of God sees into the spiritual realm. And we need to judge by the Spirit of God, seeing their souls. At one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know Him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. We are called to be proclaimers of the new life in Jesus Christ. When was the last time you asked somebody, are you tired of living the way that you're living now? Do you want a new life? Do you want to experience rebirth? Do you want to experience new life in Jesus Christ? Because you can have it. All of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ 
And God has given us this task of reconciling people to Him. That's the task that we've been given, is to reconcile people to God Himself. Are you doing that? Are you reconciling people to God? Are you showing His great mercy and His love? That is the nature of God. That is the character of God. And if you want me to boil it all down to one little phrase, it's this. We are to reflect God to the people around us. We're to reflect the love of God to the people around us. Are you doing that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning asking you to fill our hearts with your love and your grace. Lord, may we reflect your spirit. Like Zechariah, may we believe that your word is true. And Lord, may we experience the presence of the living God in our lives. Lord, we ask you to do this in Jesus' name.